This is the Art of Quality podcast. The Art of Quality is a series of conversations with investors and operators of high-quality backgrounds. From decades of exploring quality in business and life, we have found that the underlying patterns are often only accessible via stories and dialogue, and not with more research notes or Excel models. We are here to bring patterns of quality to you. To find more episodes of The Art of Quality, go to theartofquality.co. In this podcast, we are joined by Patrick Boland. Patrick is an executive coach, leadership consultant, and psychotherapist. He brings patterns of quality and leadership to us by sharing stories from his recently published book, The Contemplative Leader. You can guess from the title that this is not another 10 steps guide to mastery of leadership. Instead, Patrick takes us on a journey through his life and work in a deeply vulnerable way. He shares stories on what he learned from his mentor, Richard Rohr, how he applies Carl Jung's shadow work to his coaching program, and many more. Patrick, it is a, a deep joy to welcome you and to, to share this space with you. Um, we would love to invite you to tell us a little bit about how you spend your time and, and what you do with your life. Great. Thank you, Will. Great to be here with all of you. How do I spend my time at the moment? So I'm in a particular season in life. A friend of mine introduced me to a, a Hindu concept of looking at the four stages of life from childhood to the householder, forest dweller, and then the holy person. So I'm in the householder phase where life is busy, very, very busy. So I'm married. I have a son. We have a baby on the way very soon. Uh, I run a company based out of Ireland. Um, I write as well as consult and do executive coaching. And I try to get in a swim every day if I can, get a sail in and the, when the weather is good, uh, usually in the summer here, uh, spend some time with my son, play a bit of football and see a few friends so, and sleep, of course, as well. So I'm in the busiest phase of life for probably the next 10 years. So it's quite different to 10 years ago where I could really focus on, on work and building the business and, and things like that. So there's a high level answer to your question of, of what I do at the moment. Mm. To to give us a sense for how that's evolved over the last 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. So I suppose going back to this the four seasons of life that I mentioned. Childhood childhood was quite busy for me growing up. I was brought up in a home where there was a lot of activity encouraged, slash forced upon me, especially by my dad. So it was always quite busy. Um, so from school to playing multiple sports and music lessons and lots and lots of activity and always um, a desire to to achieve things and to, to move forward and to learn and grow and to participate. So it, it was a little less relaxing, I'd say, than other people's lives. And so I, I continue that on. I think a lot of us, when something has been mirrored for us, we unconsciously continue on in those patterns for periods of time. So I did that for quite a while. So on into my 20s, I continued to you know, work full time and I worked in strategy consulting. I worked in leadership development in a couple of different organizations. I worked in education for a number of years. Um, but at the same time, I was inevitably studying something at weekends for the evening. So I did 10 years of college and university and being undergrad and postgrad studies. So eventually, I got to relax in my uh, mid, nearly my mid 30s. But at that point, I started my company. So, um, then the focus really became around turning all the learning into building a business and taking on staff and, and building the client list. Um, so that was quite a different season. Um, but there was a lot, of, a lot of freedom, you know, evenings and weekends. I could travel. We didn't have kids. wasn't married at the time. Um, so there was kind of the excitement of, of building the business. There was the fear. Will it work? Is it working? What's going to happen? How's it going to go? Um, and then I used to have a lot of time to go on retreat, do a lot of journaling. Um, it was quite easy to um, do a lot of contemplative practice, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little later on, so form meditation. Whereas these days, it can be a little trickier. So in the last four years, my son was born during COVID. That's become a bit more of a challenging practice. So that has, that has changed somewhat. 
when he was six months old, he no longer wanted to meditate with me in the morning. So uh, we had to have more active meditation, more being aware of what I'm doing in the in the middle of it. And then the journaling has to really focus on it and do the different practices that I do. I've written this book that we're very excited to talk about this, this book, of course, The Contemplative Leader. Patrick, what could you take us through the questions that have animated your investigations over over the years? Um, mm. If there's any threads, we could guess at some, but um, mm-hmm. we'd love that. Yeah, I think the roots of this for me go right back to my earliest memories. Just a real sense of connection with the cosmos, the universe, we call it God, depending on one's culture. That was the culture that I grew up in in Ireland. And a real sense of um, being present to the moment and paying attention to the moment and knowing oneself and values of compassion, empathy, um, and just having wonderful role models, particularly on um, some of the the women in my life, so like my, my aunties, my, my great aunties, my, my nana, my, my mother. And just noticing that sense of deep intrapersonal connection they had with themselves and comfort they had in their own skin and also interpersonal connection they had with others and how they, they managed to make things happen in such a, a light way, such a, almost an easy way, a seamless way and include people and bring you along and you just wanted to be a part of it. So there is that, that piece around relationship and the piece around kind of the overall sense of the universe and, and what are we here for and then at the same time i was always involved in you know high level sport in high level in, in school there was a focus on getting top grades and everything that i did and i really was hungry to do that so when my teachers weren't good teachers i'd just go and teach myself the course i'd get additional reading literally from the age of 13 onwards i'd be like let's just go and learn this how it's meant to be learned that there was kind of that, that dual focus of looking to excel and looking to really learn and grow and also that connection piece. So that those two strands kind of culminated uh, over years. So I, I'd go and I'd work in leadership development and leadership consulting and strategy consulting. Very short time in finance until we all realized that I wasn't set for that, that everyone was glad when I left. Um, there was always this pursuit of, of organization, people in organizations, and an implicit knowledge for me, uh, and a, an intuitive knowledge that unless people can come together and align any leadership initiatives, any organizational cultural initiatives, any change programs, or any kind of desire for growth, can actually be ultimately quite quite damaging to all the stakeholders, to the individuals who may burn themselves out, to the, the social impact, community impact, the global impact, the environmental impact. So I kind of had a keen sense of that. And for me as well, I had really lived and led with the sense of I want to be in control. And I talk about this in the book, I call it being attached. You know, I wanted to um, have a clear plan. My whole life, I mapped it out at the age of 14. I knew where I was going to be, what I was going to do, how much money I was going to make. I had like utter clarity. And fortunately and unfortunately, those plans fell apart quite early on. They did not work out, and it was it was really difficult. So at a very young age, I, I was plunged into depression, and kind of going, "If I'm not achieving my goals, what's the point here? Where am I going to go? And how am I going to contribute? And how am I going to?" Jonas was less about contribution then, and more about uh, an egotistical desire to to achieve and succeed and to, and to stand apart, which is natural when you're in your teenage years and your early 20s. There's, there's a healthy side to it as well as an unhealthy element that can creep in. And then over time, I started really investigating and I was reading lots of philosophy and world religions and I was engaging in lots of different practices. So from the age of 15 onwards, I Chi to Buddhist reading to Sufi mystics um, and, and the Christian mystics eventually. And I was kind of going, how do we live in ways that acknowledge the reality that we are not in control? We can't control geopolitical things, and we can't control the person who we wake up beside each morning. So what is a healthy way to live with freedom in these interactions where we can allow other people the freedom to be themselves, uh, where we can be embodied within ourselves without having to to overly force or push ourselves or our systems or our companies and yet at the same time, how can we aim for things? How can we aim for good outcomes? How can we set goals and be present to the here and now? And so it was that whole tension 
that non-dualistic tension that led me to think, how do I bring in the world of contemplation into leadership? And going back a few years, there was a, a real hero of mine from my mid-20s onwards called Richard Rohr. And I had a, a strange dream that I was working with him, that I was writing with him. And it was very odd because I didn't know him. And um, the next day, I, there was an email from his organization. And six months later, I ended up going over, spent a week with him and his organization to search, should I go and, uh, and work with his organization called the Center for Action and Contemplation. And it made sense not to go and work for them, but to be a consultant with them. And over the course of many years, Richard and I cultivated a great friendship. He's been a, a great guide and friend and, and role model to me. And he's one of the, the leading teachers on contemplation. So we got to write a book together a few years ago, um, looking at the practices and the consciousness that's required to really in daily life and the small things as well as the big things. How can we be non-attached? It's so beautiful to, um, to hear the, the vulnerability with which you speak about this journey and, and that clearly you've been through some periods of quite fierce resistance to, to the individual will um, that, that I think many of us have, have been through um, when the plans that we craft don't seem to align with what the world wants for us. Um, and, and either we surrender or we get dragged through it kicking and screaming. And I, I still don't know which one of those two I'm experiencing now. I think there's a couple of words that, that Patrick um, kind of keep coming up that I, I think it'd be helpful just for other people to understand what exactly it means in your context, right? So the word contemplative generally is not one that I would associate with leadership books, is not something that I would associate with what is perceived generally as the formula for 10 steps to leadership. I wonder, could you just unpack the word, the concept, what, what you mean in terms of the practice behind it? And I guess if there's any examples you can give of that in practice that you've seen from leaders um, uh, that you've worked with, just to give a sense for for the folks out there just uh, who may not be um, as familiar with it as, as you are. Mm -hmm. So the etymology of contemplation goes back to an understanding of being in consideration of all the different elements. So it's at its very core its essence. It's, it's an integrative, a holistic understanding of what, you know, what is the data that we have in front of us, all the data um, to our senses, uh, as well as the data that doesn't go through our senses. Um, in a way that's logically understood. So, for example, you know, our, our good instinct is something that we feel, but it doesn't process through our prefrontal cortex. Uh, coming out in words that we can definitely say this definitively, um, what I'm thinking about this thing right now, it's just something kind of that we intuitively sense. When I talk about it in the book, I try to simplify it down because it's a very broad concept and can be used to mean many things. So I use non-attachment as a synonym. Or contemplative. And so when I say non-attachment, I have a, a continuum early on in the introduction where at one end of the continuum there's attachment. So I must be in control of things. And then what often happens is if we can't be in control of things, we swing the pendulum all other way and we become detached. So I can't be in control. I'm not taking part. I'm not present. I can't have it my way. So I'm gone. And they're two extreme examples. And most of us don't operate at those extremes. But almost coming out of that continuum, almost coming onto a, a different plane entirely is non-attachment, which is the idea that I'm present to what is happening, even though I can't fully control all of the variables. And the fact that I can't control all of the variables doesn't mean that it's not important to be here. In fact, it's really important to be here. In um, leadership literature in the last number of years, starting back from military literature, going back to 1990, we've got the term VUCA, you know, volatile and certain chaotic complex, etc. And I think it's being non-attached, being contemplative, is acknowledging that we live in this VUCA world and is looking for, well, what's the stability that we can have in the midst of this broader um, context um, of almost, you know, watching chaos theory unfold around us every day we read the news and every day we look at what's going on in different organizations. And so going within to look for that, that steady place from within and is that of the overflow of that inner presence that we bring connection out to other people. So we're not trying to force people, manipulate people. We're not trying to um, force and manipulate entire teams, organizations. We're not trying to hoodwink clients, et cetera. 
to pull to, to your question of, you know, leaders that I know who do this, because it's the leaders who are comfortable not being in control because they know that they can't be fully in control. And usually in those who I've, I've worked with, it usually happens when there may be 10, 20 years in work. Not always. It can happen at any age. But they've kind of worked through their ego building, which is appropriate, which is healthy, and all the different personas and identities that they have. So our ego is like, you know, the face that we want to have in the world, how we want to be seen, how we want to be known. And then after a while, as we mature, we kind of go, well, I don't need to be known for all of these things. I don't need to have it my way. But the leaders that I've seen do this really well, they're listening to others. They're thinking, how can I empower people on my team? How can I really pay attention and listen to the clients that we have, listen to the stakeholders? How can I know what's going on within myself to the point that I recognize when I've got an agenda and how I'm listening? I recognize that I'm trying to force a conversation. I'm trying to force things to suit me. But maybe I could move into, say, focus listening. Maybe I can move into global listening and really notice what's the dynamic that's going on here. The words are one thing, but what's actually happening in our interpersonal interactions, what's happening in uh, the way, you know, the mirror neurons in our in our brain are picking up all of the data points and going, okay, there's something else at play here. And for to do that, to be able to do that, we have to essentially have a lower ego. Um, we have to get to the point that we're comfortable within with ourselves, comfortable in our own skin, that we can get out of the way and we can allow great things to happen without interfering and kind of allow ourselves to be a conduit for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess the the one piece that it strikes me is um, when you are in a team, do you think that leaders have to be contemplative themselves to be able to turn up in an individual sense to be able to turn up to a system as contemplative or do you consider those two things two different skills that you mature towards or, or grow towards so the, the easy answer is yes leaders should be should be um it's 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 helpful if leaders are no one is fully like that so the reality is it's a both-and scenario it's that non-dualistic approach it's as we are processing as we are learning as we are journeying that we're doing that and introducing that to those around us and introducing it into the system so creating the little fractal the little piece of dna a little bit of culture um in our team you know lighting the, the fires empowering others um being vulnerable about our struggles you know and this good bit of stuff i write about in the book about how do we integrate you know psychological safety and showing vulnerability and curiosity etc how do we do that so that Others know this is a leader worth following. They're showing they're vulnerable, not that they're weak, but they're vulnerable. And again, coming from the etymology, vulnus, uh, to be wounded. So it just shows I'm not perfect. I realize I'm not perfect. And I'm happy to talk about that. And I don't expect anyone else here to be perfect. So now that we can take the guard down a little bit, let's see if we can work together and find some of the, the tools and the, the structures and the helpful setups for conversations so we can interact in the richest ways possible and then we can call out some of the unhealthy dynamics there and we can you know build trust for example and we can focus on execution and we can do our sprints or whatever it is in our organizational context we can do it in a way where there's a real freedom for people to to bring as much of themselves as they're comfortable to bring and um, but you know the way leadership really works is it's about inspiring followership uh, in most organizations today, because we don't really rely on positional leadership and hierarchical bureaucratic organizations as much anymore. Some organizations are still like that. But if you want people to stay around and to, to really care and to get the best from people, it's about connecting them, empowering them. And I think that takes a leader who's willing to, to have do the work themselves, which manifests in having a low ego and creating space for others. And Patrick, you spent a fair amount of time with with Richard Rohr, could you take us into the experience of, you know, in this context of contemplation, in this context of uh, awakened leadership, um, people that inspire followership, um, people attuned to, to the dynamic and chaotic unfolding of life, what is it like to be around him? How, if there's a, if there's a story or a situation 
whether it's dealing with conflict or navigating the unknown or anything that you might be able to share um, about the way he embodies this experience for you, to the extent that he does. Mm. Two stories, I'll tell you. One of them is in the book and the other one isn't. The one in the book I talk about, because Richard, I interviewed Richard in chapter one, what is contemplation? I thought, you know, let's, let's get it from the horse's mouth essentially to get a good understanding. And he's a lovely way of talking about, you know, it's the way we look at things. It's not glaring, not glancing, but it's gazing, really taking things in. So that's a lovely shorthand to thinking about it. But I remember a few years ago, he had a conference where he was launching um, his book, which ended up being a, a New York Times bestseller. And I was over because I was giving a seminar at the same conference and with this huge big thing and 5,000 people flew in from all over the world. And um, then the day after, we just went for coffee in the morning and he was dropping me back to the airport. I was like, so what are you going to do now? You know, you just have four days of just thousands of people trying to get a piece of you, trying to get your wisdom the whole time and just loving everything you were doing and saying. And he said, oh, I'm going to go down to the border now. To, the U.S. border with Mexico. I'm going to go down to the border, and um, I'm going to spend some time working with the migrants who are coming across. I'm going to give out food. I'm going to look after them. I said, "What? Why are you doing that right now?" He said, "I need to go and be reminded of what's real. A weekend like the one we've just had, it can really do a, a number on your ego. But that's not me. Uh, I'm not this this figurehead." I'm, I'm just I'm just a person and I need to go and get regrounded and get reminded of what's really important. But that was just so beautiful to see him and his commitment to his values and commitment to being grounded and his awareness of his ego. Even he was in his late 70s at the time. Um, and then the, the more personal story is, given my upbringing and uh, different things I experienced, I had never really wanted to become a dad. I was really, really frightened of it. Um, so for a number of years, I'd say to Richard, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I'd be able to do it. And it was just so beautiful. He just tapped me on the knee and just go, hey, you're going to be a great dad. And that was it. No more. And then we come back a few months or a year later and he'd be talking about, so any news? Are you going to be dad? And I thought, I, know, I still don't know. I've got a lot of work to do. I've got a lot of stuff to do. And then he just tapped me in the knee and goes, you're going to be a great dad. So that was just so, so beautiful to have someone who I look up to and respect so much. Um, firstly, to have that insight and belief, but also just even the way he does it. No control, no manipulation, no forcing, no massive amount of, here's all the logic and arguments, and let's talk it through like I'm your psychotherapist. It was just that, that present. I'll reveal to the group that my wife is uh, 13 weeks pregnant. Oh, brilliant. So, uh, that feel, feels like an appropriate time. Congratulations. Um, to, uh, to, to enjoy, enjoy uh, Richard's transmission via you. I think uh, I've, I've, had, I've had this very same concerns uh, mm. for years uh, and, and understand that, that experience. I feel quite well and appreciate that, that very gentle... Um, what you've described as as someone speaking to to your highest instincts, which I feel is um, in a way the essence of leadership and true friendship. Oh, oh it really is. Well, that's great. Well, can one of the things that uh, we've we've talked about a lot over the years, but also um, that strikes me even about the container that we have today, a lot of this comes back to relationships and kind of. A different way in relationships, um, whether it's friendships um, with a parent and parental generally, or whether it's it's some extended family or extended mentor relationships. I would love to understand, like in your mind, when you think about the contemplative leader, and when we think about relationships in the future, or even just just today, what is it that you feel we need to do better in terms of? Um, leading via relationships around us um, and, and what would a contemplative leader, how would they they approach relationships differently to maybe someone who is yet to, to get to that point in time? It's a simple question, Paul. I love it. 
um, many, many things I'd love to say about this. At a high level, a summary would be moving from transactional style relationships to transformational style relationships. The transactional where we feel you, it feels like we're not known and it feels like we're just at a company in a relationship, part of a team, almost to to get the numbers to what they need to be. Transformational relationships are the ones where we feel seen, we feel that others are investing in us. Therefore, we want to invest, we want to contribute, we feel on our nervous system state, we, we feel safe. I have a chapter in the book about polyvagal theory and uh, our bodies and um, what it takes to feel safe and connected to ourselves. The shorthand for that is regulated. How do we regulate others? How do we co-regulate other people? And how do we create the, the environment, the container, where the best work can get done? So that's kind of at a, at a high level. Um, this, this piece around relationships, I mean, for me, this is, this is the heart and soul of quality. It's about having quality relationships. I'd love to see us, all people become more aware of the different things that impact our presence in every moment. Again, go back to, to Richard Rohr. He, he talks about it and he says in one of his books, you know, it's about the three different factors that, that affect um, who we are and how we show up in the world. It's, you know, there's nature. He says about a third nature is his guesstimate, about a third nurture and about a third is choice. And, you know, no sociologist is happy with that definition, but it's a nice rule of thumb. And what we know in research now from epigenetics, to how trauma is stored in the body and how it stays in the body, and epigenetics is, you know, different traits that are passed down across generations. But, you know, generational trauma um, about the limiting beliefs that we may have inherited from our, our upbringing uh, unconsciously. I mean, the obvious things are if we have an alcoholic parent and we, there's, you know, pretty predictable things that we'll, we'll probably tend to do and ways that we'll think. And um, without realizing it, we'll look for partners uh, to, to love us in ways that um, we have unconsciously taken in from the kind of love, usually conditional love that we've experienced from, in this case, an alcoholic parent. There's a lot of stuff that's unconscious. There's a quote I have in the book from Carl Jung, who's a, another great hero of mine, where he says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So from a relational perspective, I think it's incumbent on leaders to do their inner work, to go inside and try to get a handle on, in what ways am I on autopilot? What's the stuff that I've carried from my life experiences that's helpful, that has shaped me in fantastic ways? What's the stuff that's nothing so helpful? That hasn't shaped me very well. We know in the research we're five times more wired to look at negative input than positive input. It's an evolutionary piece that keeps us alive. So we have a bias. Rick Hansen, the psychologist, did the research on this. We have a bias towards um, negative feedback. So a lot of the time we can we can live in a, from a reactionary place, live out of a place of fear, rather than live out of a place of optimism, out of a place of abundance. And this physiologically it's stored in our body. I mean, then as leaders, we might be engaging in relationships with others from what's called our sympathetic nervous system state, where we're in our fight or flight or fawn response, we're reacting. It's all about mitigating. It's all about managing. It's all about surviving. We're operating out of cortisol and adrenaline and other hormones to keep us alive. And we have the amygdala hijack and a prefrontal cortex is essentially shut down. Whereas if we can get into the, the safe state, um, and we can we can do our work and, and do as much work as we can on uh, the different things that have affected us positively and adversely as well. That self-awareness can lead to a higher quality of uh, what we have to offer others. Then there's some simple but really, really effective things that we can do around how do we communicate? How do we deal with conflict? How do we name it? How do we notice uh, you know, poor quality conversations, and I talk about six characteristics of this in the book. How do we move into having good quality conversations? What are the ways of framing conversations so that we're we're trying to empower others and that we can make them feel safe and that we can feel that we're moving forward together? And I, I think when that starts to happen, then that can take over in a culture, in a family, in the culture of a group within an organization, in the culture of a team, then it can become part of the DNA of an organization. And then I think you're really onto some good stuff. Then essentially what's happening is the culture is shifting. Um, or as Claire Graves, the, the founder, the author of Viral Dynamics, would say, 
the consciousness is deepening. We're adapting to uh, what's happening in our environment, but we can be adapting in really healthy and helpful ways. Let me pause there because I think I've thrown a lot of different stuff. I'm not sure if I've fully addressed your, your question, Paul. More than addressed it. I have in mind another quote from Jung that I, I'd be very curious as to your response to, um, in the sense that what you're talking about is, it is so deeply compelling. Um, the, the beauty of, and the idea of moving from more transactional to transformational relationships and experiences. Um, the experience of higher quality relationships. Who, who wouldn't want that? Um, and, and so I'll, I'll read this, this quote from Jung. Uh, maybe you can explore, um, some of the obstacles in, in your experience, um, to, to, to this change in one's way of attending to the world, one's way of behaving. Um, so, so the line goes, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not popular. Uh, so could you, could we investigate from your experience um, some of the less popular aspects of this journey from the transactional to the transformational and, and some of the inner work involved um, that's maybe a little harder to talk about. I'd love to. Great. I think what you're getting at there, Will, is Jung's allusion to the shadow, the shadow within our identities and our understanding of ourselves. And he talks about it from the perspective of the individual, but also of the collective unconscious and the collective shadow. But, so let me just focus maybe on the individual for, for this conversation. Um, I think a lot of us have heard about the term the shadow recently, and you know, there's a lot of talk about it, and there's lots of ways of looking at it. There's a few perspectives on how do we do that work. There's parts of ourselves that are really positive, that are really good, that we deny, that we're frightened of, that we're afraid of. And that is a part of the shadow that often gets overlooked. So it's finding ways finding exercises, finding practices, finding dialogical partners, you know, traditionally therapists, coaches, et cetera, who shine a light on those kind of things is going to be really, really important. Um, the classic understanding of the shadow is what's the part of you that everybody else sees or some other people see and you just cannot see yourself. In the book, I have a chapter called Identities and Personas and I have an exercise around this where we it's essentially um, coming from an exercise called subpersonalities. And we look at all the different identities that we've cultivated over the course of our life that make up our ego. Identities that have been really useful, for example, you know, achiever. Um, for me, there's like the father, uh, there's the efficient um, professional, there's, there's all these different identities. And then in the exercise, I ask us to, to bring the different identity identities into dialogue with each other and notice energetically what's happening and hear what they say to each other. And in that exercise, I ask for the identities to say what they see about one particular identity that that particular identity cannot see about himself or herself. And that can be really, really powerful and really, really difficult. But a lot of the time it comes down to other people having the courage to do that and for us to create the conditions that allow that opening to take place. In my coaching, um, using 360-degree psychometric assessments can be really, really helpful. I love the ones where you get quantitative data and then the qualitative data. And then the qualitative data, when you get the verbatim reports back and there's you know areas for development, often I'm sitting with a coachee, they're really surprised about their areas of development. And that is the shadow. Somebody has just named something or many people have just named something that they cannot see themselves. So that's, um, that's a really helpful, really powerful thing. And then the next thing is, well, what do we do with that? Because the easy thing to do is to just deny it. That's not true. That, that was that one time. Um, or it's just those other people. I bet what I often hear is, I bet you I know who wrote that comment. <laughs> that, that's the classic line of... Um, I'm going to get them. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, Jungian language around this would be, you know, a defended ego where you go, no, even if you shine a light at me, it's, uh, I'm just going to have a reason to say that this is not the light. And um, Richard Rohr and I, we, we, we filmed an online course a few years ago and um, with another colleague of ours. And one of the things that we unpacked there was Carl Jung's archetype. So we looked at and using just, just the traditional language that Jung uses, and there's other language around it as well. Talking about building the the archetype of the warrior, of the lover, of the sage or the magician, and and how do we um, embody that for ourselves in our own lives? And then as we move into midlife, we become kind of the ruler in waiting, um, which is like getting ready to to really be an elder in my community, and then eventually some of us make it across and become elders or become rulers. And then as we looked, as we drilled down even more, we looked at, well, there's the light of each of these archetypes, just what we'd love them to be. Then there's the shadow. There's the bits that we cannot see, that others see, but areas, really fruitful areas to work on. Um, and then there's the stuff that we deny in ourselves. And that's, that's a real big part of our leadership development as well as our, our human, human development. But then there's a further way of thinking about it, which is what is kind of the dark side. Uh, to use Star Wars language, which comes directly from this. And the dark side is essentially where we we say something is that's bad, that's objectively bad, that's morally bad. We just say, no, no, that's really good. We're doing you a favor. It's really good. We are trying to cleanse your country of the wrong types of leaders. We are doing a good thing here. So that would be kind of archetypally. Uh, where we move from the shadow and we completely deny any feedback that we've received. And we just go, no, no, I'm going all in. I'm absolutely all in on this. And I'm just going to back this up the hilt. So, you know, in history, classic examples of this, you know, people say Hitler. And we can maybe look around the world, say, at different people, both in business as well as uh, geopolitically, who, who move into that space. So that's what can't happen if, when given opportunities for feedback, when a, a light is shone, on uh, elements for us to grow. If we just deny it, it can get can get quite messy, quite dirty. And so I've worked in some leadership teams. The last thing I'll say on this, um, I remember working with the founder of a very successful company and the feedback came back and there were some areas for development and it was the classic line, I bet you know who said that, I bet you know who said this. Was that her? Was that him? I was like, no, obviously I can't say who said this, this is confidentiality. And then it got really dark. Then he started trying to take it out on me, started trying to take it out on other people. And it was just really interesting to observe. This is an ego that's really defended, that doesn't want to grow, given the opportunity to transform, just wants to have more and more control. So that pattern that can often happen. What experiences have you had in cultivating or preparing a container where the message is more likely to be heard? I think is something a lot of people would be interested in. How do you, how does one prepare the ground, lay the ground? Are there signals where um, you might sense that actually, I mean, I think Jung famously with patients, with some patients on an ego trip, he'd help them apply pedal to the metal. Um, that, that there were, there were some people that just weren't ready to hear the feedback. Um, and, and in his view, I think quite controversially, um, he would, he would help them assist them in their effort to, you know, invariably drive themselves off the edge of a cliff. Um, so, so that I guess that's that's you know, a, not not to turn that into too much of a tangent, but really this question of preparing the soil, preparing the ground. So I could answer this in a number of ways. I could answer it in my role as a leadership consultant and executive coach, or more in, in an interpersonal role, or what would I recommend for for a leader? What would be most helpful? I think in the context of of leadership, organizational behavior. Sure. And, and your 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 direct experiences. Okay. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in, in the preparation phase. I think it's it's really, really important that you get a good understanding of is the system ready for any kind of a change intervention? Because if there is a homeostasis within the system and there's not a willingness to change, you're wasting time and money and blood, sweat, and tears. And that's fine. Then we just need to come to a realization. And like I say in the last chapter of the book, you know, applying spiral dynamics to leadership, acknowledge the, the style and type of organization that you have, where it's at right now, and 
that's where it is. And if you're a leader in an organization and you're desperately trying to get them all to change and get the team to change and move people's thinking consciousness on, maybe you you are the one who needs to move on. Because if everyone else is pretty set and pretty happy with how it is, there's the dominant culture right there. And uh, most people can't even see what alternatives are. And if they do grasp them, they usually look like a huge threat most of the time. And if you keep on dragging people and pushing them and shining a light and showing what's possible, they're like, we really don't want that. Your leadership behavior is just threatening. So you're not creating followership. You're just creating fear and frustration within yourself. So I've, I've worked for quite a few people and by their own admission or eventually after their own conclusions, when they acknowledge the system isn't ready to change and I'm not willing to accept the system as it is, maybe I'm the one who needs to move elsewhere. But let's say that there is a system that is ready to change, be it a team, be it an organization. I always like to do a good analysis phase, so interview the key leaders, the key stakeholders to find out, based on an agreed upon you know, uh, rubric of what is it that we're looking to do? What are, the, what are the key headings? What are the key pieces that we want to see change? Get everybody's information, get all the, the qualitative and even the quantitative data around this. And then I sit down with the sponsor, sponsors and go, what absolutely has to be a part of this? And what would be fantastic if it took place? We don't need it as urgently right now. Then we choose where to start in this, in this change project. And then there's different levers for change. And in some ways, I'm probably speaking, you know, change management language and, and, and strategy language. But from a leadership perspective, it, it plays out slightly differently. The goal really is to light little fires and show what a new culture of leadership could look like to show what a new dynamic could look like and to have that be inspiring so that people want to take ownership take responsibility and that the leader is going to support encourage empower and then start to bring everyone along so that's kind of the goal then how do you create that if i'm Doing a big change project with an organization, we might plan it out over multiple years and think, right, year one, we're going to do like a, let's just say we'll do a three-day offsite. Day one is usually the cognitive, logical stuff, just the people have a good understanding that this isn't just the wishy-washy stuff. And then day two is moving into like more experiential things, introducing new ways of talking, new ways of being, new ways of processing, new ways of thinking and seeing what's possible using, you know, not just logic. And then we start to go, well, how do we form agreements? How do we do things off the back of this? How do we commit to each other? How do we come together and commit to ways we're going to interact that are going to be safe and then set some targets? Then off the back of that, it's individual and it's team coaching. And then you follow that around. And then you're seeing, now let's go for round two. Let's see, can we deepen this? Let's go to the next level. And what you're doing over time is you're giving opportunities to shift the system, to shift the culture. Sometimes cultures want to just suddenly make huge changes. and amazing things can happen very very quickly because you've reached that point and then sometimes systems are just they're just not ready and you come into year two and it's like oh, i'm not so sure if we want to go here and i think the key here is for leaders and again this is my idea of the contemplative leader is to pay attention to that to notice that not try to force it not try to be in control and go well after we signed up for a three-year thing and we're trying to go to, to phase two now notice what's happening and what's not happening notice where the energy is in the system Notice where the resistance is in the system. Where is the energy for change? Maybe you chose individuals to promote them. And maybe the energy is not with those individuals. Maybe other people, even though they don't have a positional title, maybe they actually are the influencers in the system. So how do you empower them, support them formally as well as informally? So I think it needs kind of uh, the capacity and the freedom to be able to do a little bit of a dance with it. So the structures, so the approaches, there's all the ways of, you know, doing classic change management, consulting, leadership development, all that kind of stuff. But from my experience, what makes this work or not work is the ability of the leader to do their own work, which allows them to hand over some of their power in certain ways to see potential in others and then to do the dance with the system and to become attuned to the system and kind of go, OK, so where do I need to step back and where do I need to step forward? And just go with what's happening and let, let emergent things emerge. Which is, or can be a very frightening thing for, for the leaders of organizations to ultimately, there's, there's no way around it. It's a question of 
giving up a degree of power to set other free set others free empower others create a, a playground for other people to realize their potentialities in service of some mission um so so that there's there's the giving up of power there's the pain of change that the confrontation or working with the shadow working with and, and making visible things that have been brushed away pushed away could, could you describe for us what you've seen you know what's the payoff here what do you in terms of the relationships that lie on the other side of these transformations um the quality you know we all john and i and fatty talk a lot about um multi-party stakeholder win-win models um businesses are part of this there are systems within systems um and that that high quality in in the way a business organized um looks like uh well, these stakeholder relationships being rooted in reciprocity, mutual flourishing. Could you describe what you've seen in your experience um, in terms of the payoff for going through these, these really pretty gut-wrenching, difficult, demanding, painful uh, processes of, of, uh, <laughs> of transformation? <laughs> so they're not all painful and difficult. I have a, I a picture there maybe of when it can go wrong. Um, the benefit, the upside is really what you just described. It's the reciprocity. It's the, the fact that people care so much about their work, about their organization, about their leaders. They follow those leaders anywhere. They get empowered to free, be, to be free with um, the company's clients and they get to go and be themselves there. Um, a couple of stories, a couple of things I've seen that uh, working with a bank and they they changed their their system they changed their operating a- approach so um they started having sprints and they started having their you know their their teams of 10 people and they'd have their their daily stand-ups etc um and some of the people who were doing mortgages they were empowered they had the freedom to on moving day where one of the clients phone and said company who was going to come and move all our stuff they haven't shown up and these two mortgage advisors got out there and helped their clients move house they had the freedom from their own company to go and do that because they, they were so committed to these people they've been with them on their journey and they were like yeah we, we can do this today we'll get cover from the team we'll do this other stuff they went out and did it and they talk about when they got home that night how excited they were what a different day for those new mortgage clients, like what a crazy bank! What was that that just happened? Nobody would ever dream that you know the, the people who give you your mortgage that they're going to actually switch out and help you. So it's like a simple little things like that when there are clear containers, there are clear structures, there are clear systems, and and within those systems, then there's freedom. We know where we where we can go. We know the arena within which we can play. We know where there's freedom. We're going to be tweaking and learning and growing all the time. We'll push the boundaries and that's natural. And then there's other days where we'll go, look, I, I'm not going to push the boundaries. But it's what you get in these systems is you get people who are just so loyal, who want to commit in the long term. Your retention rate is going to go through the roof. Your uh, legacy planning is going to be exceptional. Uh, a lot of the stuff I used to do, a lot of consulting on intergenerational theory, looking at how to manage across and how to lead across different generations and what are the values different generations have. A lot of the millennial and centennial uh, workforce, they're dying for opportunity. They're dying to be empowered early and they're dying to show that I've, I've got some good options. I know something about digital marketing. I know something about social. I can do some reverse mentoring with board members or with CEO and help him or her to, to understand things from the perspective of people of my generation who are mainly our clients, for example. So empowering in that way can be fantastic, but also then having the clarity of the structures, the clarity of the environment. But when you bring people along who have a, a desire to change and to grow, it's brilliant. Um, I, sometimes we might be trying to bring people along who just don't have a desire to change, and that's when the culture just isn't ready. Just, it's just not the time. It strikes me, Patrick, that having personally been in some of these situations, um, there's some systems and some businesses I've been part of where I've played both roles and sometimes I'm pushing up, sometimes I'm uh, trying to help from above. And and one of the key determinants in my mind is is trust. And you've spoken about trust when it comes to relationships. 
Um, and we we come across it in in our wider network when we're trying to help different people. There's a, a community level of trust that we're trying to help others on their journey, but equally, um, it's a high barrier. It's, it's quite an intangible barrier and difficult to speak to. I wonder when you think about that word, when you think about that concept and encouraging it in teams and cultures that you've been part of, maybe if you could explore from from kind of your experience what does that look like in practice what do the the better businesses you've seen do differently yeah trust is very very important to me and i have a piece again in the book about looking at how do we analyze trust but maybe i'll give it a little framework of it first and then talk about it in reality um so i've learned this from two friends of mine uh, margaret wheatley is a phenomenal leadership consultant and also Jim McNeish. He, I think he picked it up and refined some of this in one of her conferences. And um, so this is a, a multifaceted model of looking at trust rather than just the binary model of saying, do I trust you, do I not trust you? Because that's not very realistic for human interactions. And um, because then depending on the last thing a person said or did, you can say, oh, I don't trust them. They were my bad book. Or no, I do trust them again through my good book. That's just not, not the nature of of uh, human interaction. So in this Apart model, the sport, in newspaper, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. If you're in the newspaper or the media, <laughs> but go on. Exactly. So it's it's uh, it, it that's kind of just really scapegoating. I mean, it's got nothing to do with trust. It's back to Rene Girard and mimetic theory. It's just scapegoating. Who do we want to blame for to avoid looking at ourselves? So after that comes in. Um, so four levels. Uh, the first level is, do I trust that the person is able to do the job that I've assigned to them? So yes or no? And then we go down to the next level. So timely, do I trust that the person is going to complete the work in a timely manner? Have they done it in a timely manner in the past? Yes or no? Um, then we go down to the third level, which is honest. Do I trust that the person is being honest with me to the degree that they are able to be honest, given NDAs or given whatever other things are constraining them, uh, yes or no, in this, in this particular instance. And then finally, level four is, do I trust this person is for me as a human? Do they want the best for me? Yes or no. So there's very few people I interact with and work with where I could say that all these four levels of trust are intact all of the time. Um, give you a couple of examples. I've worked with people who, um, the first two levels. So were they able to do the job? Sometimes, but not always consistently to the quality that I wanted the job to be done. Um, and then also timely. Did they get the job done on time? Did they email on time? Did they provide things, minutes and agendas, et cetera, for meetings? No, that wasn't the case. So quite regularly, we would have had interactions, right? They just, this isn't working for me. I'd like us to, I, here's what I would like will you agree to this? And we kind of do a, a feed forward exercise of planning the future together. How do we want to commit in the short term uh, around these specific things? And that kind of kind of worked quite well. Um, and, you know, there might be a skill deficit, there might be some training that's required, there might be some encouragement, some empowerment, whatever it is that's required for these two. When we get on to the other two levels of trust, so honesty and for me, it becomes a little bit more significant. So I've worked with the person who, the first two levels of the trust were a little bit so-so, but they were very honest and they were very much for me. So I felt there was a stability in the relationship. So I had a sense that there's a foundation upon which we can build. Then I've worked with other people who were very, very able, very timely, very professional, just like excellent consultants or excellent actor business. And it was fascinating and amazing to watch them operate. They were just brilliant. Then when it came down to the deeper levels of trust, so were they honest with me? One particular example, I remember thinking that this person was honest with me. Another said, no, he's not being honest with me. He's being a bit deceptive. And then eventually I, I heard him tell lies directly to me. And I was shocked and tried to address it with him. And just denied, no, 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 you don't get to to say that. That's not the case. That's not true, even though kind of the facts were there. And then as well, this person never really asked me anything about me personally. There was never a sense of uh, wanting to see me flourish or grow or what I was interested in or valued or cared about or what was the desire to move forward. And so 
I went through, and I go through this exercise in the book, but I went through all the different steps to try to address these things until I realized, you know, with this particular person, if we're going to continue working with them, they're not interested in being for me. That's just not their thing. They're not interested in that deepest level of interpersonal transformational uh, relationship. Can I accept that? Can I just go, let's put up a boundary there and accept that that's what's not important to them. And even though it's important to me, I'm not going to receive it from this interaction. I'm just going to continue working at a more professional level with them. And I'm going to invest my energy in working on the honesty piece and trying to have, you know, some simple tools around uh, responsibility, around, you know, sending updates, status updates, projecting timelines, um, which is what we required. I'll continue to be for them and as much as I can be. I'll continue to ask about their personal lives, I'll continue to interact with them in an authentic way for me, in a way that's appropriate. But I'm, you know, I realize we're not going to become best friends over the course of our lives. And so it's possible to have trust when we're not being reciprocated at every possible level. It's possible to have boundaries around certain areas and then form agreements. So let's work together at this. Let's be open. I um, would, would love to invite you, Patrick, to speak to um, the topic of I guess the topic of quality in relationships is really central to, to what we've been talking about, to this investigation and, and experience I think we're all seeking. Uh, could you share a little bit more about the role models in your life that, that modeled for you what a high quality relation, intrapersonal relationship looks like? Yeah. Um, it's funny, I've been... I've actively pursued role models and mentors in this area because it's something that I thought was very, very important. I think about when I was younger, certainly my nana, my mom, it was a real interest in seeing me flourish and real putting themselves in my shoes and also bringing me along, showing me what life was like and showing me kind of the fun, the opportunities, the possibilities, what learning looked like, what empathy looked like, what connection looked like, what, what humility looked like. So that was that was huge from, from the start. And was quite a contrast to many of the other role models I had. And it was hard to work out like which is which one is right here, you know, in my in my dualistic childhood thinking, which was totally appropriate at the time. Um I remember when I was in college, I was actively looking for role models and had five of them so they were all between 20 and 50 years older than me and i'd go to each of them and i'd read books with them and i'd ask them questions and they'd talk to me about their lives etc and over time four of the five kind of faded away and when i thought back to it afterwards i realized those four people all had a plan for my life they all had an agenda and the one who stuck with me until he died, actually. Uh, he didn't have an agenda for me. He was just there to be a mentor, a guide, a role model. But he was, he was very conscious that he was there to support me to be me and not to become a mini him. That was huge. That was a big moment to realize that. And the others were good people, without a doubt, and had great impact on the world and great relationships in, around them. But it was, it was just a, an energetic difference. It felt like oh, they want me to say this thing or do this thing, or they want me to take their advice. I felt a little less free when I was around those others. And again, that continued. I had a colleague I worked with who completely embodied his values. He talked about his values. He was, um, yeah, he was very good fun. He was very himself. He, he, he was vocal about who he was and then he was also just almost secretly just very generous and very kind and um that really stuck with me as well and i suppose for me as i think about different people in relationships now i've got some great clients that i've worked with over you know six seven eight years um who frankly you know they inspire me by their commitment to growth their commitment to development by their honesty uh, there's a leader I, I work, I've been working with for many years and I've coached many people in his team and I'm not team coaching. And I look to him, I think that's incredible leadership. That's 
fantastic. And then we might get off a call all with, with a few people, and then he'll come to me and go like, "So how did I do?" I'm like, "Why are you asking me?" You know, like you're you're absolutely killing us. Um, just to see that humility and that desire to learn um, all the time and to bounce ideas off me and to to listen well, but then to you know he's his own person, just to make it his own, um, is is great. Uh, and there's a few other examples of, of people like that. So uh, like there's a very strong set of values from a lot of these people. Um, they're often brilliant, like intellectually, academically, from an execution point of view, brilliant. Um, often kind and compassionate. My drive of you know seeking to achieve excellence, but also seeking to hold on to the bigger picture. You know, we're living this one life here, as far as we know right now. And how do we contribute and how do we integrate with as many systems and communities as possible and, and do something that's for the collective good? So for me, that's, that's all excellent. So, uh, but a lot of these people have really gone on their own inner journey. So I've just been very fortunate to sometimes accompany them on it and often just see the fruits of, of what they've done before I've gotten to meet them. I feel like we could almost uh, talk about that for an hour in and of itself, the idea of, of finding mentors like that and and you know what sparked in in you over the years to find those patterns but um we'll have to part that for for our next chat um i patrick it's been an absolute pleasure um love uh i think we've we've talked about um certain elements on a on our on the water all around Ireland over the past couple of years, but but it's been a pleasure to to kind of go through some of these things um, with you and and kind of explore the depth around this. Um, I think, as you know, there's a couple of um, wrapping up questions that we always do mm-hmm. uh, for poor folks who who decide to to come along for the journey. Um, so the first one is is actually just uh, at a, a really high level. Um, how can we help you? Um, where can people find you? Um, is there anything, anyone um, in particular that you're looking to to reach out to or connect with? Um, and if you could just share with folks, then um, there may be someone out there who, who we can connect up. Great, yeah, thanks. And just to say, first off, like honestly, the, the pleasure has been as been mine for me to get to talk about my favorite topics is fantastic. So thanks to all of you today. Um, yeah, how to find me? So company website is connected. Dot IE, so C O N for November E X U S connector. And then I'll make a, a link in the bio as well. Okay, great. Um, and then the contemplative leader.com is for the book um, and the online course and the masterclasses, the online masterclasses as well. So, in terms of help, I mean, the, the book has just come out just a few weeks. Um, the online course is coming out next week. That's uh, mid February. Same with the masterclasses. So, would love to connect with people who are interested in delving deeper and in, in knowing more. Um, usually L&D leaders in organizations, founders, um, DHROs, uh, anyone in an organization who, who would like to know more about this and how to do this from an individual coaching perspective, but also from an, a team and a systemic perspective. I'd be delighted to uh, get those connections. That would be great. Thanks. No, we definitely there's there's a bunch of people even in our conversation today that have come to mind. We can't wait to to connect you in. Um, in terms of the the closing question, and what's the most impactful experience that you've had with the idea of quality? So we we obviously uh, touched on threads of it during the discussion, but I wonder is there anything specific that comes to mind? There's one story I have, which is a little left field, but it, it it's true. Sure. It's just something that came to mind. I remember. Back in 2010, a friend of mine, a colleague, said, would I do the Round Ireland Yacht Race with him? And I was just, I just learned how to sail in my mid-20s. It's something I always wanted to do. And I said, yeah, let's, let's do it. So I just had like my basic license so I could rent boats internationally. And I went on this boat and we had this skipper who was so professional. He connected with where everyone was asked. He asked you questions. He connected with, with you. He was incredible at teaching from, you know, meteorology to race tactics to specific little details of what's the best way to hold each of the different ropes in the boat for different maneuvers that we were going to do. Just sequencing of all the different maneuvers was fantastic. Really good fun. Um, 
And as a result of, you know, we did four optional races and then we did the round on the art race. And as a result of that, I decided to go and get my professional sailing licenses with him as my instructor. Um, so it was just an amazing experience from uh, a learning perspective and from a leadership perspective to see someone who could embody uh, the knowledge, teach it really well, and fundamentally lead and inspire at the same time. That was, that was excellent. And because of that, I'm a lot more confident uh, when we go sailing for that um, I feel like I have some idea of what I'm doing, even when the wind picks up. I'll definitely second that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for the time, Patrick. Um, been a absolute pleasure. And, and we definitely, there's way more to unpack. So I'm sure this won't be the first chat, but thanks. Thanks for taking the time. And um, yeah, I know I can speak on behalf of all four of us, including Ferdy on the way to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> My great pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. And for more resources, please visit our website, theartofquality.co. If you think of anyone that could be a good fit for this format, please reach out via the website.